You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I don't know about you, but when I go away on vacation, I love bringing books with me. And I don't use a Kindle or some other electronic device. I still like the old-fashioned, water-unresistant paper book, notwithstanding the fact that I often find myself sitting by water, even if it just means a little pool. In part, I like paper versions of books because I like writing inside of them. I know, I hear a collective groan from some purists out there. And where I write serves as a kind of mnemonic device. That's why I do it. Still, I know that if I'm on a beach or on a hike, sand or dirt, respectively, will get stuck in its binding, and I end up shaking bits of the dirt or sand out of the book for months thereafter. But I love that so much, relaxing wherever I am with a good book, which means I habitually toss two or three in my suitcase. And yes, I know they weigh my suitcase down, but I'd rather have books than extra sunscreen. So here, my dear listeners, are my five recommendations for books, fiction, poetry, and one play to toss into your suitcase that will make it worth leaving that extra sunscreen behind. My first recommendation is Timothy Taylor's Stanley Park, which was actually published in 2003 by Vintage and is now available through Random House Canada. Not a recent publication, this novel is still one I thoroughly enjoyed, both then and now, and it's largely a fun and smart book. If you are a foodie, this book is particularly for you. It focuses on haute cuisine and specifically the Vancouver-based chef, Jeremy Papier, who owns a bistro called The Monkey's Paw. The tensions mount as he wrestles with the accumulation of debt he's incurred for the purposes of managing his restaurant in a growing conflict with his arch-nemesis, Dante Beale. Sidebar, all the implications and clear references to the 14th century Italian writer Dante Alighieri in the Inferno or Hell, the first part of his epic poem, The Divine Comedy, are relevant here. Now, while Jeremy Papier prefers using local ingredients and menus, Dante Beale is into a trendy, globalized, post-national fusion cuisine. And so Jeremy feels that public demand for the likes of Beale, and he must decide what's important to him and what his values really are, as his sense of ethics are rigorously tested. There's a culminating scene in the novel that is in some ways, in my opinion, truly awful. It rivals one I've read in Mordecai Richler's Solomon Gursky Was Here as a really appalling eating scene. So do be prepared for that. But the scene is a comment on how people lack knowledge about their local contexts and environments. And Jeremy's desperation, as much as his anger with those who throw around capital for the experience of novelty, rather than a sense of developed culinary taste, which, 
yes, I know also requires capital, but that's a discussion for another day. Recommendation number two, Rawi Haja's Stray Dogs. Now, I've loved Haja's work from his literary debut, and specifically De Niro's Game, which is featured in the second episode of season one of this podcast. Short stories, as I said in my last episode about Eden Robinson, are usually not a publisher's first choice as a first publication. Alice Monroe is thoroughly exceptional, and one who at least conferred a more distinguished status on the genre. But I suspect it'll take a little more time before it can hold its own against the weighty novel. So therefore, writers often turn to short story collections once they've proven themselves to be good novelists, even if they actually prefer writing the short story. I don't know what Hodge's preference is, and I'm not sure I really care, because he largely writes the blazes out of anything he puts his hand to. I loved De Niro's Game, and I loved Love, Love, Stray Dogs, published by Knopf. That said, after our conversation with my dear friend Elise Moser, I was convinced that I should at least note how much attention is allotted to male characters and how marginal female characters really are in this collection. They aren't really given sustained attention. Even so, I'm recommending that you tuck this one into your suitcase because you can read these otherwise superb stories in short spurts and return to another story at a later moment. The stories give the impression of being simple, but they are deceptively simple. And it's a real testament to the grace and skill and craft behind Hodge's writing. The first story, The Iconoclast, for example, begs all kinds of questions. Who is the iconoclast in this story? Our slippery first-person narrator or the other key male figure, Lucas? However we respond to the story and whatever its interior weight, Hodge renders our responses even more complex by the kinds of indirect connections and associations that may be made from one story to the next. The professor of the iconoclast, for example, gives a paper on James Joyce's The Dead, one of my favorite stories of all time, by the way, at which moment he addresses how photographs offer a subject, quote, suspended between life and death, end quote. The idea of photographs is revisited again in The Whistle, which, as it happens, opens with two characters chasing falling bombs in Beirut in order to photograph them just before they touch the ground, also a moment in tension. And then there's the entertaining and disturbing story, Instructions for the Dance, about a character named Anatole, who is a wedding photographer and seemed to, quote, revolutionize the staid industry of wedding photography, end quote, breaking beyond convention. Just to clinch the intersections between the stories in relation to this particular subject, the image of Hajj at the back of the book features him holding a camera. So you can read these stories independently, but also interdependently, since the associations between the stories make their understanding that much richer. And while you may approach these stories casually, they are certainly worth a second, third, and even a fourth read. My third recommendation, Neil Smith's Bang Crunch. Okay, I know I'm on to a third male author here, and I will shake this up in a minute. 
But for now, I want to add this book published by Vintage to the list because it's also a series of short stories, but quite different in scope and tone. These ones are really finely crafted with exceptional precision. They are sharp, wry, and somewhat offbeat, just the way I like it in terms of fiction anyway. Bang Crunch tracks the lives of characters who are thrown together and connect in the most unpredictable ways. Their experiences are unlike and everything like our own and inhabit what I would call glorious contradictions. I should add a sidebar here that Smith signed my copy of this book with, quote, now you have both. And he meant both his novel and his short story collection. But I couldn't help but think how his characters in Bank Crunch always want contradictory things. They want to have both community and privacy, both social interaction and a sense of remoteness from the world. In the story, Funny Weird or Funny Ha Ha, for example, the main character, a female protagonist, is grieving the loss of her partner, Carl, whose remains she carries around with her in a curling stone. Yes, you heard me. He died while curling, and so this is how she chooses to preserve his ashes. The zany and tragic remarkably exist in this collection in close proximity. She describes her seclusion after he dies as, quote, a familiar clinging loneliness. Not a blanket or shroud of loneliness, but something thinner, tighter, a leotard of loneliness, end quote. To this, she adds that, quote, though I'm basically an introvert, I'm an introvert who has trouble being by herself all my life. I've been with others, my family, roommates in university, then Carl and our son, Max, end quote. It's a story that walks a tightrope between humor and grief, an absolute marvel of balance. And my fourth recommendation Marilyn Dumont's A Really Good Brown Girl. I adore the poetry of Métis writer Marilyn Dumont, and so I recommend you get your hands on this book, A Really Good Brown Girl, with an introduction by Lee Miracle, and which was initially published by Brook Books in 1996. Part memoir, part poetry, and part historical record, this collection was unbelievably her first one, and she has an impressive trajectory that has since followed. But I love A Really Good Brown Girl for its candor, its irony, and its eloquence, for its unflinching account of what it means to grow up as a young Métis woman, for its incisive and satirical remarks about colonial institutions, for the affecting moments that speak far more volubly than the words on the page. Take this moment, for example, in the prose section of Memoirs of a Really Good Brown Girl, wherein the narrator is accosted by a white elementary school girl about her skin color. Quote, My skin always gave me away. In grade one, I had started to forget where I was when a group of us stood around the sink at the back of the class, washing up after painting. And a little white girl stared at the color of my arms and exclaimed, Are you ever brown? I wanted to pull my short sleeves down to my wrists and pretend that I hadn't heard her, but she persisted. Or this one, Circle the Wagons, quote, There it is again, the circle, that 
goddamn circle as if we thought in circles, judge things on the merit of their circularity, end quote. But the collection expands well beyond such moments to explore erotic and playful relationships as in Wild Berries, which is smoking hot. In this particular poem, the narrator notes that the object of her gaze is a gift and adds that my eyes, long fingers, slowly untying a thin ribbon. And then the poem goes on from there. But most of the pieces in this collection are short, but have real depth. So they might not seem to take considerable time to read, but they will resonate and remain with you for a long period thereafter. And the last book I want to recommend to you is actually a play. Anne-Marie MacDonald's Good Night, Desdemona, Good Morning, Juliet. MacDonald is now renowned for her novel Fall on Your Knees, which is, by the way, currently being produced by the National Arts Theatre in Ottawa, Canada. There's a link in my show notes. But my memory of MacDonald goes back even further when I remember her as an actress performing in Toronto, Ontario's High Park as Rosalind in Shakespeare's As You Like It. I was completely enchanted by her performance and have followed her artistic career ever since, including, by the way, her wonderful and playful approach to Mordecai Richler when she served as the Mordecai Richler 2015 Writer-in-Residence at Concordia University. There's a series of videos called Dispatches that are witty and really worth watching, as the one called, quote, Let's Go There, Men, Women, Cigars, Richler, in which he says that, of course, as a lesbian half-Lebanese woman, of course she was sure they were going to select her as the inaugural Richler writer-in-residence. And then she, of course, is winking at the camera, which she mentions, though, just before fishing out a couple of Playboy magazines from the stack on Richler's desk. Again, there's a link in my show notes. It's absolutely marvelous. But I digress. The play, Good Night Desdemona, Good Morning Juliet, published by Penguin Random House, was her first solo one, winning both the Governor General's Award and the Floyd S. Chalmers Canadian Play Award, among others. It's essentially a tongue-in-cheek feminist revisioning of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and Othello. In this particular play, that by MacDonald, the main heroine, Constance Leadbelly, is writing her doctoral dissertation about Juliet and Desdemona, the heroines of Romeo, Juliet, and Othello, when she finds herself transported into their world. Her subsequent interactions with the characters produce the comedy that ensues, with Juliet at moments in hot and romantic pursuit of Leadbelly herself. While this allows MacDonald to subvert the heteronormative Shakespearean plots, it simultaneously allows Leadbelly to develop insight into her character, the world of academia, and feminism in general. This is a funny and fun work that not only wouldn't take long to read, and not only will introduce you to the work of Anne-Marie MacDonald, it'll just make your vacation that much better for the reading experience. And those are my top five recommendations. Join us for the next episode to be released on April 1st, in which I interview the poet and scholar, Dr. Jason Camlot, about his collection of poetry, LARF. And as always, thanks for tuning in.
my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.